All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, introducing David Stockman. He is, of course, an author, a formerly a congressman and famously Ronald Reagan's budget director. He wrote his magnum opus is called The Great Deformation, but he's got a bunch of other great books like that as well on Amazon there. And his website is Contra Corner, David Stockman's Contra Corner, and that's at davidstockmanscontracorner.com. His latest is called Back to Square One. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Very good. Uh, how are you? I'm doing great. Really appreciate you joining us here today. Hey, everybody, watch this. So, David, anything bothering you lately? <laughs> uh, anything not bothering me would be a better question. Uh, when you look around at the world today, you wonder how we got into this predicament. Um, you know, Washington has just gone completely off the deep end, berserk uh, with this Ukrainian situation. Um, and, you know, your audience knows all the details and the arguments, but we get to the point where they put 40 billion through with uh, ha hardly sight on scene and not a single Democrat votes against it, including all of the ultra left wingers that at least in the past, you know, the squad, AOC and the rest of them uh, uh, every now and then had sort of an anti-war posture. That's all gone. That's on top of the 13 billion they've already sent over there. We're now at the point where we've voted uh, 80, you know, enough money to equal 82% of the Russian defense budget for an entire year, which includes their entire military, all branches, their nuclear programs and everything else. This is just absurd. It's not, you know, a, a question of foreign policy or you know, a debatable argument about uh, national security. This is purely a case of the what I call the Trump derangement syndrome, TDS. Um, uh, you know, they still Washington, official Washington, and in that I include the bipartisan duopoly, the leaders of the Republican side as well, have not gotten over the fact that Trump won in 2016. Uh, they insist it was uh, illegitimate due to uh, Putin's intervention. Finally, Trump is gone. Uh, and so Putin has become kind of the surrogate, the avatar uh, to attack, basically uh, to prove that you hate Trump with all your heart. And so you're going to uh, uh, turn uh, Putin into a demon and forget, you know, all the facts, uh, all the analysis, all of the realism about the world that would pertain to uh, this, this situation and the Ukraine and just uh, plow full steam ahead. And Nancy Pelosi shows up for a three hour photo op uh, with a whole 
you know, tag along group of, of Democrats uh, last weekend, uh, you know, in cheering uh, the Ukrainians on to, you know, to the uh, death of the very last Ukrainian so that we can have a proxy war uh, with this evil Putin who's really Donald Trump in disguise. Now, this may sound a little far-fetched, but the fact is this is the objective reality of what we face, and it's a damn dangerous thing uh, to be waging a proxy war with this massive um, attack, you know, in the form of what I call the sanctions war that's uh, really upending and roiling the entire world economy, and that's all going to feed back right into our domestic economic situation, which is uh, what we opened with. Uh, we were in deep trouble already because of the roaring inflation that the Fed and other central banks have fostered over the last several years, if not longer. Um, and uh, we uh, you know, have an economy that's so freighted down with debt, both uh, household, corporate, and uh, government, that uh, growth is very hard to come by to begin with. Now uh, we throw into the mix uh, a complete breakdown of the global uh, dollar-based payment system and the uh, trading system, and we send uh, further spanners into the global supply chains, which were already badly uh, dislocated by the COVID, and we've got a real... Uh, <laughs> sort of world-class economic mess uh, coming right down, uh, you know, <laughs> right down the pike uh, at the uh, Main Street economy. And average Americans who uh, are not by any, any stretch of the imagination being consulted about this or being represented, represented in any way by, frankly, either party uh, that's having uh, so much fun making a proxy war in uh, Washington. Yeah. All right. Well, so many great points to follow up on there. In fact, I'm going to okay. go back to the war for just one second. Sure. You may have seen this clip, but even if you didn't, you'll get the gist here, of uh, Professor John Mearsheimer, the realist from the University of Chicago, right. on uh, the PBS NewsHour in a sort of debate with Evelyn Farkas from the Obama oh, years. Yep. And... The premise of it's very simple. It's not like they have much time for an in-depth discussion, but the premise is simply that, one, Putin says he would never use nukes unless he saw an existential threat to the Russian state, in which case he very happily would. And two, he could very well see a loss in Ukraine as an existential threat to the Russian state. And so he might use nukes. And three... We're pouring in as much weapons as we can because we're determined to force the Russians to lose the Ukraine war no matter what. And Mearsheimer says, well, this is completely crazy. Yeah. I mean, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, we negotiated. Right. And what the hell right. are we doing? And Farkas yeah. says, nah, come on. He ain't going to use nukes. Or at least, you know, he would signal first if he was going to. But I think Sergey Lavrov has said three or four times recently that, like, yeah, we could end up using nukes here, <laughs> which yeah, seems like a pretty well. clear signal to me, Stockman. So I was yeah. just wondering, <laughs> I, I mean, you used to live there among these yeah, people. Yeah. Just how stupid and crazy and wrong can they be? I, I'm a bit out yeah. of a loss here, you know? 
Yeah, I, I am too. And that's why I resort to this uh, Trump derangement syndrome explanation. I mean, this isn't uh, rational. This isn't adult. This isn't uh, analytical in any way. It's they have so demonized one person on this planet of 7 billion some people, Vladimir Putin. Uh, they have made him a proxy for all of their political ambitions and frustrations and a resentment about uh, you know losing control of the machinery of government at least for four years uh, when Trump won, that uh, you know they can't think logically or rationally anymore. Why would you drive uh, someone with 6,000 nuclear warheads, 2,000 of which are actually usable and active, to a state of existential threat over a piece of territory in the eastern half of uh, Ukraine that has no bearing whatsoever on the true, uh, you know, security and liberty of the American homeland. I mean, this would have been so easy to solve. They could have said easily in December when uh, Russia and Putin uh, laid out the case for a new security arrangement. They could have easily said no NATO ever again uh, in uh, Ukraine. Uh, that will follow uh, the Minsk process. And if it results in the partition uh, of the country, so be it. Because, uh, you know, the Donbass in the eastern part of Ukraine has been Russian for 300 years. And it's Russian speaking and it's Russian culture and it's uh, Eastern Orthodox religious, uh, religiously. And it's not a country that was built to last anyway. It was an artificial creation, as I've often said, of uh, three of the worst people in world history, Lenin, Stalin, and Khrushchev, put together the bits and pieces of what is now Ukraine that now the entirety of the imperial city in Washington, as I call it, insists that these borders are sacrosanct and uh, must be defended and uh, prosecuted to the extent of, uh, you know, threatening uh, nuclear war. I mean, it, it's just crazy, but that is, um, you know, that is the great deep hole that Washington has worked itself into. We can only hope that there is such a resounding uh, defeat uh, of the Democratic Party in um, November that uh, somehow uh, Washington uh, gets sobered up and uh, a, a remnant of Republicans led by Rand Paul and some others, uh, you know, bring us back to our senses because, uh, you know, uh, there's not much that passes for adult or rational thinking coming out of Washington. And it was all brought together this week with this ridiculous rush to judgment on 40 billion of sight unseen money that's going to go down the rat hole uh, in the Ukraine. I mean, it's almost like a, a form of military Keynesianism. We're going to pump uh, tens of billions of weapons in there. Most of them won't make the trip from, uh, you know, uh, the eastern uh, uh, Western border, I mean, where it comes across from Poland uh, to the war front, it's going to be blown up on the way. 
And what does get to the uh, front in the Donbass will be used up in a matter of days. So, you know, I don't know what they think they're doing. It's not going to change the outcome uh, in the Ukraine. Sooner or later, uh, the Russian forces will prevail. Um, but in the process, uh, they're going to, you know, flush tens of uh, billions of dollars uh, down the rat hole um, because Washington has really lost its mind when it comes to foreign policy, uh, dealing with Russia, dealing uh, with Putin, and uh, thinking um, rationally about uh, what's really at stake uh, in this really civil war in the Ukraine between the nationalists from the western and central part of the country and the Russian-oriented, Russian-speaking population of the Donbass in the south that's been under attack uh, by the Kiev government uh, for the last eight years, ever since the CIA State Department sponsored coup in February 2014. So this is, this is a world-class mess, and uh, there is no doubt about where the responsibility lies. It's, it's come right out of uh, the policymaking uh, forums in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Give me just a minute here. Listen, I don't know about you guys, but part of running the Libertarian Institute is sending out tons of books and other things to our donors. And who wants to stand in line all day at the post office? But stamps.com? Sorry, but their website is a total disaster. I couldn't spend another minute on it. But I don't have to either. Because there's EasyShip.com. EasyShip.com is like Stamps.com, but their website isn't terrible. Go to ScottHorton.org slash EasyShip. Hey, y'all, Scott here. You know, the Libertarian Institute has published a few great books. Mine, Fool's Errand, Enough Already, and The Great Ron Paul. Two by our executive editor, Sheldon Richman, Coming to Palestine and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other. And of course, No Quarter. The Ravings of William Norman Grigg, our late great co-founder and managing editor at the Institute. Coming very soon in the new year will be the excellent Voluntarist Handbook, edited by Keith Knight, a new collection of my interviews about nuclear weapons, one more collection of essays by Will Grigg, and two new books about Syria by the great William Van Wagenen and Brad Hoff and his co-author, Zachary Wingert. That's libertarianinstitute.org slash books. Well, I know what'll uh, lick your inflation. A couple of H-bombs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But maybe there's a better way. Um, but now, so uh, listen here, Stogman. As an economist, I'm a great anti-war guy. And, you know, I, I get this whole Austrian theory of the business cycle. It makes sense to me since I read Jekyll Island 1995 or whatever it was. The sure. government prints up all this money. They cause a giant artificial boom. A lot of people don't even get to enjoy the benefits of the boom during the boom times, but um, they just, you know, have to suffer rising prices and whatever. Um, but anyway, if you own assets, then you get, you know, a lot of uh, free welfare basically out of that, right? Uh, right. You didn't build that. Your house just increased in value four times <laughs> and then you sold it, right. yeah. you know, but that's just yeah, uh, exactly. government money, right? But so in my experience, in my limited experience, I've seen the crash of the 1980s, especially here in Texas. There was a huge real estate crash that came with the oil crash and the, I guess, in the aftermath of the stock market crash of 87. Mm -hmm. And then there's a crash in like uh, another kind of further recession in like 92 era after Iraq War One, And then, of course, the big one in 99 and the bigger one in 2008. But I guess what I'm trying to get to here is most of those 
seem like sort of simple textbook. Boom, bust. Boom, bust. But now I think something's different. Now we're going back to more of a 70s model where it's not really boom, but it's, we don't get to feel, and nobody gets to feel the artificial prosperity, really. I guess some people owning assets get in, in inflated uh, prices yeah. there. But we have these kind of crashes, but the inflation is never licked. And so it's sort of one bigger boom with smaller corrections all the time, like we're suffering right now. But no true, you know, I don't know, bear market or true recession that it would take to really stop the inflationary uh, pressure from all the new money that they created. So I guess what I'm really just trying to ask you is, could you help me to sort of visualize where we are on this boom bust cycle, how it is that this is working now and what people can expect to see coming, you know, in the near and medium term here? Yeah, that, those are good questions. And I would say first, we did have a boom, but it ended up, it manifested itself in two places that were different, uh, not the Main street, uh, street economy. First, the boom happened on Wall Street. As all this money was pumped into the canyons of Wall Street, most of it never left. It went into this tremendous uh, speculative increase in the price of all financial assets, bonds, stocks, derivatives, uh, everything in between. And as a result of that, you know, the market value of uh, the stock market alone in the United States went from about uh, 15 uh, trillion at the bottom of the uh, 208 uh, uh, crash uh, to upwards of uh, 45, uh, 50 uh, trillion today. So that's the first part of the boom. It didn't, it didn't, uh, you know, impact or benefit the average uh, middle-class uh, family, it didn't uh, manifest itself on Main Street. Uh, it ended up uh, in this uh, unprecedented financial uh, bubble uh, that emanated from Wall Street. The second thing is all the excess purchasing power that did make its way into the economy ended up uh, you know, creating a boom in China and in its supply chains around the world not here. In other words, uh, the Fed has the, uh, you know, obsolete Keynesian view, in my uh, judgment anyway, that when it pumps uh, stimulus into the domestic economy, that that uh, purchasing power stays here. It creates uh, more purchases of goods and services, which create uh, profits and wages, which then get spent and you have a, a virtuous cycle and all that. But on the margin, that is not what happens today in a world where we have, you know, in the, in the range of three and a half trillion dollars worth of imports a year and where much of our productive base has been uh, exported uh, or offshored, uh, to use uh, uh, the correct term, uh, to China and elsewhere. So now when the Fed uh, uh, pumps up uh, spending and demand on Main Street, uh, the purchases uh, end up you know, in the bank accounts of producers in China and elsewhere around the world. Now, that meant that during the interim, let's say from 2012, when the Fed uh, officially adopted uh, inflation targeting, you know, this vaunted 2.00% target, which is not justified by any economics that I know of. It certainly isn't validated by empirical history, but in any event, 
they had the 2% target. And for the next seven years through 2019, inflation appeared to be low in a goods and services sense, even if Wall Street uh, was uh, inflated to a fairly well. But the reason for that was the one-time shift of production to a global supply chain based on ultra-cheap labor that brought the price of goods down uh, like never before in history. Actually, from 2012 to 2019, the uh, deflator, uh, which is what the Fed looks at, the PCE deflator, declined by 40%. Now, I think part of that was just screwball um, methodology at the BLS, but the point is that was what was in the numbers, a 40% drop over uh, about seven years in the price of goods, most of which were being imported. So that held down the overall uh, uh, CPI and PCE deflator and allowed the Fed to not only pat itself on the back, but to constantly moan and complain of low inflation, that they were missing their inflation target from below and therefore needed to keep pumping money. But the problem was uh, the one-time gain, uh, the one-time deflationary impact of uh, exporting our production base to China and elsewhere is over and done. We then got COVID, we then got the Ukrainian war, we then got a tremendous, uh, you know, dislocation and upheaval in the global supply chains. And all of a sudden, rather than importing deflation, as we did for about seven or eight years, we're now importing inflation uh, that's coming out of, uh, you know, the global commodity situation and supply chains that have uh, been totally upended. So uh, therefore, if you really look at the underlying numbers, uh, the CPI says 8.5% year over year, but I think we're in double digit inflation if you look at what's coming up the pipeline. That is to say commodity prices and producer prices, which are you know the next level up, which will show up in a few months uh, in the CPI uh, and you know what we might call a street level or retail level inflation. And the Fed is going to have no choice. This is as bad as it was in the late 70s and early 80s when you were seeing the uh, you know chaos that happened in Texas afterwards. I was in Washington uh, and we were attempting to cope with this. It's every bit as bad as it was then, except the Fed is so far behind the eight ball that it's going to spend the next year or two, uh, you know, reluctantly tightening until it finally uh, throws the economy into recession. So I think we're going to have a big one. It may take uh, a few quarters or even years to get there. But the Fed is so far um, behind the curve that uh, it will have no choice except to push uh, uh, interest rates far, far above what is now expected, and that will f- finally uh, bring down uh, the economy because we're now, uh, you know, uh, lugging around uh, so much uh, incremental debt compared to what we had the last time we, we experienced double-digit inflation uh, in the late 70s and uh, early 80s. As a matter of fact, in a piece that I did yesterday, I demonstrated 
that when Volcker pushed the uh, federal funds rate to 19%, the actual inflation rate at that time measured on the uh, PPI or wholesale price index was about 14% and change. Today, uh, in April, the number that came out yesterday was 15.5%. In other words, uh, the year-over-year inflation coming up the pipeline is worse today than it was when Volcker, you know, stood at the barricades. Yet the Fed has had, you know, the so much lack of gumption that they have the interest rate uh, at 0.83%, not 19%. Man, so, so it, just to kind of zoom out here a little bit, I remember being four or five years old watching Hee Haw and watching, I still remember, the ads for new cars and trucks, and especially A1 mobile homes. And now I understand why there was a big boom in mobile homes at that time. People couldn't afford a home. So they were buying mobile homes from A1 is number one. That was the slogan for your mobile homes. But then, and I remember the truck commercials, just 19% financing and whatever for, and and, um, and then I read, see, I was too young to really understand, but then I read William Greerter. This is the Washington Post version of the creature from Jekyll Island is Secrets from the Temple. And it's the story of how Paul Volcker, how he was quite deliberately, I guess you would argue honorably, I understand your point of view, uh, quite deliberately forcing America into a Great Depression. He was taking America and he was strangling it to death. And they kept stats on the suicides and the divorces and the foster care and the bankruptcies, personal and business all across the land. And they had to do it. And you're sitting here telling me now they don't have the courage to do it again. Because this well, is the crisis you know, the, that these uh, same sons of bitches have put us in again, where the only solution is to force a crash worse than the lockdown crash that they created two years ago. Yeah. Well, see, the thing is, uh, in Volcker's defense, he was put in on an emergency basis by Jimmy Carter. I mean, the Democrats never would have taken a sound money man like Volcker, but they were desperate in August 1979. When he came in, the inflation rate was running about 11 percent. And even the Fed, the dovish Fed of William Miller, had the uh, funds rate at 10 percent. But he said this isn't going to work. If inflation is still running higher than the funds rate, it means the real interest rate is negative and people are going to keep borrowing and spending and the inflation isn't going to be Uh, contained and curtailed. So he pushed the interest rate up, not because uh, he was some kind of, uh, you know, uh, a guy that wanted to make people suffer, but he saw no choice coming to the game that late with the Fed so far behind the curve. So he pushed the interest rate to 19%, and it did bring the economy down, and it did purge the inflation. And by the first quarter of 1986, the inflation rate was running about 2%. Now, the lesson there is not that you need a Volcker, uh, you know, to slam on the brakes and uh, to be... uh, you know, heroically uh, steadfast uh, at the bridge, you need not to get behind the curve. But, you know, again, uh, they have not learned the lessons of history. And here we have, um, you know, Powell, who's number one uh, responsible for this, uh, you know, led the Fed to a situation where inflation is pushing double digits 
and he has an interest rate that is less than one. I mean, that, that's about as uh, dumb, that's about as counterproductive and uh, pusillanimous as it comes. And so we're right back in probably worse shape than where Volcker was when he came in, when he was put in uh, on a desperation basis in August uh, 1979. And now, uh, let me go back to something you said about, but the national debt and every other debt is so high now yeah. that if you were to do yeah. that again, they'd blow up yeah. the world, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, I, that's the thing I pointed out yesterday. At roughly in uh, early 1981, when Volcker finally broke the back of inflation and had the federal funds rate at 19%, there was about five trillion of debt on the economy and three trillion in change of GDP. So the leverage ratio, debt to GDP or debt to income, was about 1.5. Where and that's where it had been historically through good times and bad so prosperity and uh, lack of prosperity. But that was kind of the golden mean that was more than a hundred years uh, standing. Today we're at 3.7 times debt. The GDP, 85 trillion of debt, uh, or excuse me, 88 trillion of debt versus 24 trillion of GDP. Now, if what that means is that we have two turns of additional debt on the economy relative to income compared to what we had when Volcker uh, had to, you know, hit the brakes hard. Uh, in dollar terms, if we had the same ratio, same national leverage rate. 1.5 today that we had back then, there would be 38 trillion of public and private debt, not 88 trillion. In other words, the economy is lugging 50 trillion of extra or incremental public and private debt that will be hit hard when the Fed finally has to crank up interest rates to a level that will uh, be sufficient to uh, break the back of inflation and get the price level moving, uh, you know, uh, uh, downward in a convincing direction. Mm -hmm. well, I'm sorry, David. I, I, next time we do this, we definitely got to schedule an hour, but I am sorry. I have to go to my next guy here. Okay. Uh, but all thank right. you. Thank you so much for your time. I've learned a hell of a lot already, and I hope we can follow up here pretty soon. Is that all right? We'll, we'll definitely do that. Okay. okay. Thank you so much, sir. Really appreciate it. Okay. Bye. All right, you guys, that's the great David Stockman. He's at David Stockman's Contra Corner. And seriously, I had a ton more stuff here, but I knew that was going to happen. But uh, check him out. It's worth the, the price for the subscription there at davidstockmanscontracorner.com. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.